Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy for giving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So I'm glad to be here continuing in the four series. There are two things that struck me in particular as I was looking at the passage that Joe assigned to me, but the first thing I think I need to say is that when I think about the word for, I need to make sure that I affirm that God is radically for you. God is radically for me. God is radically for us. He is for his creation. The psalmist says he's faithful in all of his promises, and he's loving toward everything he has made. And it's a good thing that God is radically for us, because without him we are evil. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. This is our passage this morning. Luke tells us in his gospel that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Those who seek find. And those who knock, the door will be opened which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit 
to those who asked him. This is the first thing that stuck out to me as I was reading. Jesus does not sugarcoat things. He does not flatter his audience. Evidently, he didn't go to that seminar that tells you how you're supposed to butter up the people you're talking to so that you'll get a better hearing from them. No, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, whole, will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Paul says in his letter to the Romans that at just the right time, while we were yet powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, for a really good person. Somebody might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us this way. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was not surprised to find out just how evil we were. He was not surprised by our sinfulness, by our brokenness. There's nothing about the ways that we disappoint God, the ways that we hurt others, the ways that we harm our own conscience, the ways that we are at odds with this good creation that God has given us. None of that is shocking. God knows it all. He knows it better even than we do. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, Paul goes on to say, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, Paul doesn't say we might hope one day to be justified. He doesn't say that if we try hard enough, if we get our act together, if we say enough prayers and we do enough good deeds and we give enough money away that maybe we might hope to have reconciliation with God. Maybe we might somehow find ourselves back in his good graces if we just do the right thing enough. That's not how it works. We couldn't. You couldn't. I couldn't. None of us could. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have been justified by his blood. We have now, Paul says, received reconciliation. And there's so much that needs to be reconciled, isn't there? If you go back to the original story, back in Genesis, God gives Adam and Eve everything they could possibly need he gives them a place where they're safe, where they're provided for. 
He gives them good work to do. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. The filling the earth part. Lots of fun. He says, the only thing is, just this one tree over here, just don't eat the fruit. Everything else is entirely yours. Have a blast. Just don't eat that fruit from that tree. The serpent comes along being more crafty than any of the other wild animals. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? She said, no, we can eat fruit from all the trees in the garden. We just can't eat fruit from this one. In fact, we can't even touch it. And if we touch it, we'll die. (laughs) You're not going to die, the serpent says. Actually, God knows that when you eat it, you're going to be just like him. You're going to know good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And both of their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What a stupid and pathetic gesture. Think about that. You realize you're naked. You're going to find some fig leaves and sew them together. So when God calls to them, he says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid from you. He said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat the tree, eat the fruit from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me fruit, and I ate it. Lord God said to the woman, what did what, you do? She said, well, the serpent, serpent deceived me and I ate. And everything falls apart. He tells the woman, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe with pain. You'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God gave them proper clothing, made garments of skin. The very first shedding of blood to handle the effects of human sin. And they're driven out. 
Yahweh God banished him from the Garden of Eden to go work the ground from which he'd been taken. So everything's broken. The relationship with God is broken. They've been sent out from his garden. Their relationship with each other is definitely broken. He says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. All relational conflict comes from that sin. Certainly their own relationships themselves are broken. They have guilty consciences now. They go to bed at night thinking about all the things that they failed to do that they should have done. Things they did that they shouldn't have done. Even their relationship with this good creation that God has given, that's broken too. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Paul says later in Romans that all creation groans in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This good thing that God has made is now not right. So much is broken. So much needs to be healed. Thank God, because He is for us. He heals. Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians that, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live back when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts, like all the rest of them. We were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's, not, it's the gift of God. It's not by works. There's nothing you have to brag about. You've been saved by God's grace through faith. The only works involved are those that Jesus did on our behalf. There's all kinds of ways you can understand that Genesis story. You can, if you want to, read that as a story of two literal human beings, the very first two that God placed in this garden and they had this encounter. You can read that as the story of Israel placed in the land, given God's good Torah, given good work to do, choosing instead to rebel and follow after the nations around them and worship their gods. 
And you can read that as the common human experience of knowing the things we ought to do and not doing them. Of knowing the things we ought not to do and doing those things. G.K. Chesterton called original sin the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Think of what happens to every child when they learn the word no. They love using that word, don't they? I did. No, we're going to assert our autonomy. We're going to have things our way. That's just a tiny picture of what happens when we look at God and say, I think you're in my seat. And because of that, everything gets broken and needs to be reconciled. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when everything was broken, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, yeah, that death that God said would happen if we ate that fruit, that happened. Even then, he made us alive with Christ, saving us by his grace. And in light of that, Paul says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we do the things God has called us to do, not because we're trying to impress him, not because we're trying to earn his favor, not because somehow we can dig ourselves back out of this hole that we dug. We do these because God prepared things for us to do. And us, of course, is the church. There's a Christian theologian who's especially influential in my thinking, and really in the thinking of so many of us who were doing ministry at the time that New Hope began. His name was Leslie Newbigin. He'd been a missionary, a leader in India for decades, and when he came back after his service, came back to England, he found this society that had been Christian when he left, or at least it had seemed like it, and when he got back, things were very different. So they got him thinking about what it is for the church to be the church, for the church to be doing the good works God prepared in advance for it to do, to be God's agents of reconciliation, and he pointed out that Jesus didn't write a book. Jesus formed a community, a community that has at its heart the remembering and rehearsing of his words and deeds and the sacraments given by him through which it's enabled both to engraft new members into its life and to renew this life again and again through sharing in his risen life, through the body broken and the life blood poured out. It exists in him and for him. He is the center of its life. Its character is given to it when it's true to its nature, not by the character of its members, but by his character. He goes on to talk about different characteristics of 
this community that God has created. I'll just point out three of them. The first that I'll note is that this community will be a community that does not live for itself, but is deeply involved in the concerns of its neighborhood. And I'm not going to steal Joe's thunder when he talks about how New Hope is for Catonsville and for Baltimore. But Newbigin says it will be the church for the specific place where it lives, not the church for those who wish to be members of it, or rather it will be for them, insofar as they are willing to be for the wider community. I'll say that again. It will be the church for the specific place where it lives, not the church for those who wish to be members of it, or rather it will be for them insofar as they are willing to be for the wider community. The church is not set up to meet the felt needs of consumers. One of the things that we noticed when we started New Hope was that there was so much talk in the church about meeting people's felt needs. For one, you can get spun up and just continuing to try to meet those. Ultimately, you're going to disappoint people. But if your focus is on meeting the needs that people feel they have, you may not really be meeting the needs that they actually have. That's the other thing that occurred to me as I was reading our passage. Obviously, a good father knows when his child asks for food to give them food. Of course, they ask for a cookie right before bed. You wouldn't do that, probably. Maybe you give yourself a cookie before bed. That's a different problem. But a good parent knows that you give your child what they really need, not just what they feel they need. So the church is not an institution that exists to gratify consumer desires. It's a church that is for the wider community where God has placed it. It is, Newbigin says, God's embassy in a specific place. He also says that the church will be a community of mutual responsibility. The church is to be effective in advocating and achieving a new social order in the nation, which all kinds of people want it to do. It has to be a new social order itself. The deepest root of the contemporary malaise of Western culture is an individualism which denies the fundamental reality of our human nature as given by God, namely, that we grow into true humanity only in relationships of faithfulness and responsibility toward one another. The local congregation is called to be, and by the grace of God often is, that kind of a community of mutual responsibility. And when it is, it stands in the wider community of the neighborhood and of the nation not primarily as the promoter of programs for social change, but primarily as itself the foretaste of a different social order. Its members will be advocates for human liberation by being themselves liberated. 
Its actions for justice and peace will be and will be seen to be the overflow of a life in Christ, where God's justice and God's peace are already an experienced treasure. So the church is not somebody that stands on the corner yelling about things that someone else ought to do. It lives out the new reality of what it means to live well as God designed us to. And then finally, Newbegin says it will be a community of hope. The gospel offers an understanding of the human situation which makes it possible to be filled with a hope which is both eager and patient, even in the most hopeless situations. It's only as we are truly indwelling the gospel story, only as we are so deeply involved in the life of the community, which is shaped by this story, that it becomes our real plausibility structure, that we are able steadily and confidently to live in this attitude of eager hope. And so where that drives us to, is our mission, what God has called us to do. If the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, it'll only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, is known, is experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But that's only going to happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members. Former Archbishop of Canterbury said that the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-members. This will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. This week, our house church started studying the book of Colossians, as Mary said. This was a momentous week for us. For the very first time, we met for a second week in the row. We are slowly getting in touch with how we're supposed to operate as a house church. I was struck, as I read, by this blessing Paul offers this church in Colossae. He'd never met. He'd heard about their faith. He'd been praying for them. And his prayer for them was this very much consonant with what Jesus said about how God will generously give the Spirit to those who ask. He says, God, fill you with the knowledge of His will 
through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul's prayer for them is the same prayer that I have for new hope. God, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may leave, lead a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, because God is for us.